I will trust Brexit Focus with Paul Goslin and Jared Dean. Welcome to episode 14 of the Hollywell Brexit Focus podcast. My name is Jared Dean, joined as always by Paul Gosling. Paul, great to see you again. And you, Jared. Right, before we get into any detail around Brexit, this is a fast-moving picture here. We need to state really clearly, this has been recorded on the 24th of January. Things may change by the time this goes live, so don't be crucifying us if it's out of our control here. But this is the current Brexit reality as we understand it. And we have some really interesting interviews this month. We've got three dairy people, essentially. So we've got Stephen Kelly, Chief Executive from Manufacturing and A&E. We've got Colin Harvey, who's Professor of Human Rights Law at Queen's. And we've got our local MP, the FOIL MP, Alicia McKellian, as well. Paul, quick synopsis, if possible, of what have been the main developments in the last month. Well, there's one thing which is absolutely at the top of the list, which is Theresa May's withdrawal agreement lost. Heavily in the House of Commons by 432 votes to 202. That's the largest ever defeat on a government motion by a prime minister in the history of British politics. Yeah. That's pretty big deal. Yeah, that's a big deal. But the, the other big deal associated with that is the next day, Theresa May survived a vote of no confidence. Yeah, in other words, we're not about to have a general election, at least not this week. Yeah. I mean, who knows, in another month's time or something, maybe there'll be another no-confidence motion. But yes, the government is still there, but what we don't have clarity is what's going to happen over Brexit. seems to be that the same plan keeps being presented and presented in the hope that somebody will vote for it at some stage. And I think that's still probably the most likely outcome, that something close to Theresa May's deal goes mm. through the House of Commons, you know, with some amendments. We don't know for certain whether that will happen. Um, if it does happen, it will have to be perhaps with some form of cross-party support unless Theresa May can persuade her European research, uh, research group uh, mm-hmm. MPs and the DUP to support it. If not, it will have to be some form of cross-party uh, alliance. Uh, or maybe there'll be a second referendum. Or, or maybe there'll be a, a delay on Article 50 and they'll get more time to negotiate uh, possible revisions. Or perhaps there'll be a vote in the House of Commons to suggest we continue to be a member of the Customs Union or a Customs Union. Or perhaps there'll be agreement for a different type of a, a free trade agreement. All these things remain possible, Joe. OK, so it's still really, uh, really unclear about what's going to happen. And I think, it, it, I don't know about yourself, Paul, there seems to be a growing sense of frustration as well amongst people. And we don't know where we're heading. We don't know about the border. Tell us about the border. It's like, what's it looking like? Yes, and there's so much confusion. Um, and we had the statement from the European Commission spokesperson the other day who said that um, it, you know it's pretty obvious that if there's a no-deal outcome, there will be a hard border. Mm-hmm. So actually, perhaps we should stop using the phrase a hard border. I prefer the phrase a controlled border. Okay. Because whether you're talking about the European Union trying to protect the single market and the customs union or whether you're talking about trade under World Trade Organization rules, then actually you have to control the border. You have to say whether goods coming in have the same regulatory standards, particularly in Ireland in terms of the agri-food sector. But also, if you're trading under World Trade Organization rules, then actually you've got laws that you have to comply with in terms of tariffs, which means Mm -hmm. the tax on things coming through. And I go into that in more detail in the blog that will be published online and also that's being published in the Dairy Journal. So if you're interested in the detail of what the World Trade Organization rules mean, then that's a good way to read about it. Okay. And Simon Simon Coveney, the Taunashton Minister for Foreign Affairs, came out today in the Irish Times and said 
that they're not even planning for a hard border because he feels that the joint EU-UK report that came out and was agreed in December 2017 allows for full alignment and the no need for a hard border. But you're convinced that a control border and hard border are two different things here? Yeah, you might get away with delaying the implementation of border yeah. controls. But ultimately, at some point, if you have different systems of trade, then you're going to have to have some means of controlling that trade. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, whatever words people use, and they are using their words very carefully for the most part, then actually you're going to have to have some form of control. And ultimately, if you're having goods arriving by plane from other countries in at Dublin Airport, then the law says you've got to basically tr- have the same controls coming in uh, over the border, the land border, yeah. except it could possibly be a sea border. So the question is, where's the border? And this is where we are the whole time. Do we have the, the border at uh, Koch Quinn, or do we have the border down the Irish Sea between Lan and Stranraer? Things in the House of Commons then, as, as we mentioned earlier, Theresa May is still trying to get this deal through, but the relationship with Labour is... Not exactly brilliant at the moment. No, but as we sit here today, there's a decent chance that a proposal put forward by some of the front benches from the Labour Party and the Conservative Party to delay the implementation of Brexit withdrawal, it is, seems quite likely that will pass. Now, mm-hmm. if that is passed, then basically what it says is if there isn't agreement on a deal by the end of February, then we are going to delay implementation of Brexit. Okay. So that looks as if that might happen. But there's an awful lot of bites and possibilities still. Opinion polls, people are still divided on this issue. Yes, uh, but one of the opinion poll findings that was really significant is that if you drill down to this, yes, the population as a whole is still pretty divided, perhaps equal between those people who want a second referendum, those people who want the Theresa May to go, uh, deal to go through, and those people who actually would prefer no deal. But if you drill down into the people who are actually members of the Conservative Party, I don't mean the MPs, but their party members, Mm. 75%, three quarters of those ordinary Conservative Party members want the UK to leave the European Union without a deal. Now, that pressure on individual Conservative MPs means that it's not simply the European Research Group MPs, the very far right of the Conservative Party, that are concerned about the outcome and of favouring a no deal. But there's an awful lot of pressure on individual Conservative MPs as well. And that plays into the general uh, theme of the problems at Westminster. Another group that's still campaigning for a no deal, the Economist for Free Trade. What is it that they're saying? Yeah, this group, I've referred to them about uh, about them in, in previous podcasts because they're a very influential group of economists. They're very close to Margaret Thatcher and they still have a lot of influence on the Conservative Party. Now, they've said they would like to see a no deal. Firstly, they said the benefits of this would be that there wouldn't be a financial settlement, the, the, the 30 plus billion pounds, mm. though Theresa May has said whatever happens, actually, we still have to pay that because it's part of international law. Mm. But in addition... They say, well, it will reduce the cost of food and also that the cost of using migrant workers will be lower because if we're not part of the European Union, then non-EU migrant workers wouldn't have to be paid tax credits. And also they wouldn't be able to bring in their dependents who would rely on the National Health Service or free education in schools and also that those workers themselves wouldn't be entitled to treatment on the NHS. Mm. So they're arguing, in effect, for a lower paid economy through migrant workers compared with where we are at the moment. So I think it's important to understand the arguments of some of the people that want us to leave the European Union without a deal.
the impact has been felt and some of the larger companies and corporations continue to leave. That's right. Sony has announced it's moving its headquarters, in addition to which we've got Dyson that's moving its headquarters to Singapore, though it needs to be said that they are saying this isn't to do with Brexit. Brexit. It's just because Asia is a much more important market than Europe Mm -hmm. uh, and the UK. Um, And we've got warnings that other companies may follow suit. Uh, We've got um, Airbus indicating that it could well close down its manufacturing uh, plant in the UK. And actually, one of their manufacturing bases is the largest manufacturing base of any business in the UK. And they're talking actively about moving that outside of the UK. And not immediately, but when they next, you know, gear up to their next big manufacturing output. So we are at risk of losing some of our big companies, big investments if we don't have a negotiated free trade deal with the European Union. I suppose for people in this city in particular in the community of Audrey sector, there's been some reassurance about the next round of peace funds, the peace plus as it's called. Yes, there were concerns because Karen Bradley, as part of uh, putting pressure on the DUP to row behind the Theresa May deal, did indicate that uh, you couldn't be certain that peace funding would continue. Well, Mm. Theresa May has clarified this. She says there will be continuation of peace funding, what's been called the Peace Plus, Mm. beyond 2020. We all know anyway that the peace funding is guaranteed up to 2020. We're now told by Theresa May it will continue beyond 2020 under the Peace Plus. However... What is unclear is the mechanism by which the payments will be made, because it's not certain that the organisation that currently pays it out, the SEUPB, will continue beyond 2020. So there's a lot of uncertainty about the future arrangements for funding in the voluntary sector, much of which receives funding from the peace programmes. Yeah, okay. And alongside the uncertainty about the SUPB, I suppose, will be associated... What will the program do? You know, the whole objectives will have to That's be rewritten, right. etc. Oh. Yeah, because if we have a different intermediary body giving out the money, it may well be that the objectives will change, the criteria will change. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> right. So we're heading towards a decision. Do you reckon? Hopefully. At some point, there has to be a decision. In the next few days, there will be a decision, even if that decision is that there's no decision for the time being. <laughs> All right. And I suppose over the last few weeks, we've heard a lot about. The Good Friday Agreement has come back on, I suppose, because of the border conversation. And there was talk of it being renegotiated and talked about. And where, What's your reading on that? It's like, where are we going? Is it safe? Is it sacrosanct? Or what's the pressure on it? Or? Well, there have been concerns, and those concerns have been twofold. Firstly, people like Michael Gove that are keen on Brexit have in the past argued that the Good Friday Agreement was the, the wrong solution mm-hmm. to the troubles. And things were made worse when the Daily Telegraph carried a front page splash saying that uh, the Good Friday Agreement was going to be renegotiated. Well, it's not. Basically, the UK government and the Irish government said, no, it's not. However, there are tensions about the way the Good Friday Agreement is going to work Mm -hmm. because there are agreement, parts of the Good Friday Agreement say basically about cross-border cooperation in certain sectors, in particular agri-food. So how that sorts itself out in terms of a possible no-deal outcome we don't know. But yeah, apparently the Good Friday Agreement is safe. Safer but as we hear later on when we talk to Colin Harvey, you know, the, there are concerns about the fact that there are bits of the Good Friday Agreement that actually have never been implemented. For example, the commitment um, to um, new laws and uh, protection. So, mm. yeah. Okay. So moving on to our interview, saying the first person you met with was Stephen Kelly, who's the Chief Executive of Manufacturing NA. 
Well, Stephen is at the forefront of lobbying of the UK government and the political parties saying that his members are very concerned in particular about the risk of a no-deal Brexit, and we hear now from Stephen. Prior to Christmas, there was a really deep and dark and quite fraught atmosphere around Westminster. It kind of reminded me of being here at home in terms of what had been happening around parades and flag disputes, etc, etc, etc. I mean, there was a real sense of division led in Parliament, but spreading out onto the streets. And that was quite quite concerning, just knowing what division means here and the cost of division, not just in terms of business and uh, the economy, but also how people get on and the, the cost that that brings. And in many ways it was like that scene out of Wallace and Gromit, where Gromit is at the front of the train, which is running out of control, and he's busily firing down bits of track in the hope that disaster is averted and I think that's probably a really good description of where Parliament and government was certainly prior to Christmas which is why Theresa May pulled the deal which is why Parliament didn't have its say at that point in time. Being back across in London this last couple of weeks the mood has changed thankfully a lot of the heat believe it or not may seem unusual looking in from outside a lot of the heat seems to have been taken out of some of the atmosphere at least there is a, a greater sense that the future needs to be defined in different ways than what the Prime Minister and the government have been trying to do. Where we find ourselves right now is that Parliament has rejected the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration. However, there's still so many options and so much division within Parliament. They don't know which direction they can coalesce around, what can actually bring about some sort of unity uh, across the chamber. But at least we now know, and are beginning to know, what Parliament can and what Parliament can't support. So the Labour vote of no confidence has failed, so a general election isn't likely for now, at least. There's other amendments and proposals coming forward which Parliament seems to be talking through to either support, but more likely to move away from. So whether that's things like a second referendum, things like a hard Brexit, no deal outcome. And whilst things may seem confused and difficult to most observers outside, that process of eliminating some of the options actually provides a lot more clarity a lot more clarity for uh, for Parliament and for government themselves and hopefully for the rest of the UK uh, as well, which includes our members who are desperately keen because of the need to just take decisions, are desperately keen for some settlement to where we currently find ourselves. And that's a good point because you are the chief executive of one of the most affected sectors, the, the lobby group Manufacturing NI. What do your members want out of this process? Well, they would want the UK to remain in the EU. Uh, That's why our members, uh, when we surveyed them prior to the referendum, they wanted to remain as part of the EU and we uh, made that position clear when we engaged in the referendum. And really nothing's changed. The the UK has decided to leave, but they've committed and promised that the benefits that we have enjoyed has been part of the EU in terms of seamless, frictionless, cost-free trade through the customs union and, and single market membership. That's all been promised to us across the UK. And then in addition to that, both the EU and the UK committed that Northern Ireland would be doubly protected. They committed that Northern Ireland would enjoy a backstop, uh, that that backstop would ensure that in all scenarios, including no deal, let's remember, but in all scenarios, the benefits of seamless supply chains and the all-island economy would actually be protected. So where our members are right now is they're very much behind the withdrawal agreement because it provides... Uh, both that certainty in terms of the future trading relationship for certainly Northern Ireland and also provides that 
insurance that they've been promised by all parties in these negotiations. So when we surveyed our members on the withdrawal agreement, 94.4% of them supported the withdrawal agreement and no one has changed their view on that. In fact, there's probably greater support for this. So over the last year, we've we've asked people to keep a kind of Brexit barometer in play, trying to find out how people's mood was around this. A year ago, 21% of manufacturers felt that Brexit could be a success. That's down to just 4% now. That tells you where business actually is. They don't believe some of the promises that those on the on the extreme of Brexit have made about what the future looks like as a trading environment. These are experienced international operators. They know how to transfer stuff from territory to territory. Well, it's not all manufacturers, but export, 100% of them import. So they, they know that uh, what they've been told by some of the ERG and other Brexiteers just simply isn't true, and they're not buying it. And if we assume that we are going to leave at the end of March, or a bit later perhaps, I mean, is there a fallback position? Is there a preference between being a member of the Customs Union or a member of the uh, Canada-type uh, Canada++ plus plus free trade agreement? Is there a, a, a preference amongst your members? Well, our members actually know what these things are, um, unlike some parliamentarians perhaps, but our members actually know the difference between the Customs Union elements of the single market, free trade agreements, because they operate in these environments uh, all over. Uh, nothing that's been proposed as an alternative model to this works as well as what we currently have. You don't have any additional benefits from being outside the single market and customs union through a free trade agreement, etc., 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 than more than what we currently enjoy. So we know there's going to be additional cost and complexity. So the first position for our members certainly is we need to stay in the customs union, and we need to stay in the single market as best possible, uh, particularly uh, for goods. Uh, so there are no other models that our guys have looked at that they felt, well, that looks like it's workable for us, that looks like it's beneficial for us, that looks like we can continue to trade as, as close to how we're currently trading. So that the starting point for them is customs union and, and single market, and it's often misunderstood why both of those things are important. I would give a lot of the debate has been around possible introduction of tariffs, and the possible introduction of non-tariff barriers, so things like origin rules, certification, etc., etc., etc. From a manufacturing perspective, equally as important is those elements of the single market that allow for market access, market participation. So if I give some examples, we have a manufacturer in the broad automotive sector. Their product goes to London, to the FCA, where they get what's called construction and use approval from the FCA. That then gives them EU whole vehicle approval for their uh, for their particular product which means that that product can go anywhere within Europe outside of the single market those bodies no longer exist so the route for our, that member to go and get that approval for that vehicle is suddenly closed down so they need to find another location somewhere in Europe in order to get that approval without that approval their vehicles can't go into the marketplace across Europe and that represents a big part of their business in fact every one of their customers whilst they may be UK customers their product actually goes across European roads, whether that's in Ireland, across Do- from Dover into Calais, and across Europe. Market access is just as important as avoiding tariffs and avoiding non-tariff barriers. And the same goes for things like CE marking, all those, that amazing engineering sector that we have in, in South Tyrone. All their products have CE marking, they approve them for the marketplace. We drop out of the system that allows those people to achieve a CE marking, because there's no agreement between the UK and the EU at that point in time. So they need to now go and find another route in order to be approved for that 
product and get into the marketplace. That's repeated right across different parts of our sector. In the pharmaceutical side, you need qualified persons, QPs, who have the authority to sign off batches of drugs for release down into the, the rest of the EU marketplace. When we drop out of the EU, we don't have the right for those QPs to sign those off. So our members are looking for ways in which they try to maintain the business that they have. And on many occasions, that's meaning millions of pounds worth of sunk investment into things that they just don't want to do, but they feel that they have to do because the alternative is they don't have access to that marketplace. So if we go to rank it, the order of priorities for your members would be, first preference would be to remain within the European Union, second would be to be a member of the European Economic Area with full membership of both the Single Market and Customs Union, third option would be EEA without perhaps full membership of the Single Market, and then after that it would be the Canada Plus, and at the absolute bottom would be a no-deal crash-out. What would be the impact for your members of leaving without a deal? So... In a more global sense across the sector in Northern Ireland, it would be really, really difficult. The first thing is it adds huge amounts of additional cost and complexity. And in a part of the economy that is so sensitive to cost, that is potentially existential for many firms. Uh, if we give some examples in terms of uh, food, so we have one member in the, uh, in the baking industry. Uh, Tesco's a big client of theirs. They supply into Tesco stores right across Ireland. There's a 45% tariff on bread and... Uh, Tesco's just simply won't consume that cost and they certainly won't pass that cost on to their customers. So that represents about 25% of their business. So they're now having, because of employment legislation, having to press the trigger on protective redundancies for 25% of their staff in order to protect the other 75% of the staff that they have there. So the impact of losing just that one client has a massive impact right across their entire business. If you go to some of our other businesses uh, who feel that they may be immune from, from this because they just trade with the rest of the UK, well, there's going to, be, going to be potentially problems in terms of getting supplies across to Northern Ireland. We're at the beginning and at the end of every single supply chain. People in food may still have a, a source of that raw material in terms of that food, but do they have a source for packaging? Packaging isn't going to be one of those items that's prioritised through the Port of Dover. So how do they actually get the product, the fresh product from here, into the marketplace if they can't get the packaging in place as well? So these things, when people begin to really get under the bonnet of what this means for their business, every firm that I've spoken to so far sees no deal as a potential existential crisis uh, for their business. Now, there are some upsides. So the UK will have to revert to more purchasing of UK and Northern Irish produce in terms of supermarkets, etc., 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 in order to avoid any particular problems or blockages. There's a greater amount of import substitution beginning to, to wind its way into the UK marketplace. And some of our firms are seeing that UK GB customers are increasing their purchases with them. However, all that falls down if they can't get raw materials. All that falls down if other parts of their business depend on the EU access and they can't get, can't get the approvals, can't get the uh, product or the raw material to themselves. Or if there's a, a massive spike in terms of costs, customers we know won't uh, endure those prices. So everyone is, is beginning to get a little bit heated up about what this actually means. Even those who would probably still support Brexit are beginning to realise that actually there's a lot of these issues that are going to cause really deep problems within their own business. And they're now looking for advice and information about where to go. The last big question is what do you actually expect to happen from here? So Parliament is clearing its throat. Parliament is working its way through what they think they can support. We'll then come to a point where the Prime Minister needs to either 
pivot more to the right in terms of our ERG and some of their supporters in the hope of getting some sort of approval for a deal or pivot more towards Labour uh, and a more sensible Brexit. So that's remaining in a customs union and largely within the scope of the single market a key. So what I think will happen is we'll probably move more towards a Labour Brexit position. The Prime Minister will see that as her last act as a Prime Minister and step aside once a withdrawal agreement is approved. It will require a massive beefing up of the political declaration because the withdrawal agreement itself won't change. And effectively it's what the Northern Ireland backstop is providing for Northern Ireland, but across the entire UK in permanent rather than in in a temporary position. That will then leave space for a new Prime Minister. The Conservative Party will probably, at that point, a a more right-wing, more hard Brexit type Prime Minister. And they will try what they can within Parliament to bring more of what a hard Brexit would look like in terms of domestic legislation. And they'll blame the current Prime Minister for the problems of not being able to achieve lots of that. So I think there's a huge amount to play for, Paul. That's a guess on what will happen next. That's not a suggestion in terms of what Parliament should be doing or what the Conservative Party should be doing. But right along this process, we've asked the UK government to be honest about what this means. We're now beginning to approach that moment in time where where there's no choice but some honesty. What no deal looks like puts big pressure on every constituency in the UK. If drugs can't get in, if food supplies and packaging can't get in, if the very chemicals for our water treatment can't get into the UK, then every part of the UK is is impacted by this, whether they're a strong Leave supporter or a strong Remain supporting constituency. I think once that heat goes onto the soles of the feet of those 643 MPs who, who sit in Parliament and the reality of what no deal looks like, I think Parliament will eventually accept a deal which allows us to move to the next stage, which is the much more productive, much more valuable, what the future long-term relationship between the UK and the EU will look like. The Highwell Podcast Brexit Focus, funded by the Community Foundation of Northern Ireland's Brexit Dialogue Fund. Download this programme and stream it for free on SoundCloud.com, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Subscribe, listen, share and enjoy. Very informed conversation there with Stephen. He's obviously been well across this brief for some time now. You also met with another person hailing from the city, Colin Harvey. You talked about human rights beyond Brexit. Yeah, Colin is uh, one of the most senior human rights academics. He's a professor of human rights law at Queen's University. And as you say, he hails from the city. And Colin is very concerned about the impact on human rights of uh, of Brexit. uh, And he explains in detail why. Now, Colin, I wanted to ask you about the impact of Brexit on human rights. And if I may, I want to ask it to you in, in two parts. Firstly, what's the impact potentially on human rights for both UK and Irish citizens in Northern Ireland under the Theresa May negotiated withdrawal deal. One response to that is to say, obviously, you know, the best outcome for many people here is that Brexit eventually doesn't happen at all. But uh, the withdrawal agreement and the protocol are really an attempt to mitigate 
the worst in terms of the consequences for this society. So there is actually quite a bit in the withdrawal agreement and the protocol in relation to uh, human rights and equality, and there's references to human rights in relation to political declaration in terms of the future relationship as well. There's a sense of disappointment that some aspects of the joint report from December 2017 haven't been fully realised as yet, but I think some of those will be developed over the longer term, particularly in the bilateral discussion that may happen in the future between the British and Irish governments around things like the common travel area. Well, on the protocol itself, just to underline that there's a commitment there on the UK government around no diminution of rights, and that attaches to rights in the relevant section of the Good Friday Agreement. And there's reference there to dedicated mechanisms to be set up in order to protect those rights. There's references in the protocol too to the work of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, the Equality Commission, and the Joint Committee of both Commissioners on the Island of Ireland. So I think one thing to bear in mind is at the start of the, I think, of the Brexit conversation, it initially started as a rather narrow discussion about things that are absolutely fundamentally important around trade and economics. But there's a sense in which air, you know, human rights and equality were slightly airbrushed out. But I think it really is a credit, I think, to many civil society organisations and others and political parties as well and the Irish government to, that human rights and equality made their way onto the agenda. It wasn't taken for granted that that would happen. So the language that is in the protocol is very much language that was argued for and uh, fought for, really, to, to be included. It probably doesn't go as far as many people would have hoped it would have went in terms of guarantees. But there's a foothold there in the withdrawal agreement. There's a foothold there in the protocol. And if this thing ever does become operationalised, if it ever does come into effect, then there are important protections there that people will be able to use. I suppose the issue around the common travel area and British Irish citizens, very, very interesting current discussion because you've heard you know, the many references to the common travel area. And what's quite remarkable about the common travel area is, of course, sort of abstract the concept it is. It isn't actually formalised or codified in a proper, formal, legal way. Now, it's been interesting this week to note media reports that there may be something on the offing in, offing in relation to that. It's interesting there's Times report this week that there, we may be about to see a bilateral treaty and a memorandum of understanding. So we need to see a bit more detail around that. But that's where... For example, in relation to the to Irish citizens in a UK context, that'll be fundamentally important because a lot of the rights of Irish citizens in the UK, for example, are really underpinned by European law. And so people talk about something, the CTA, that really doesn't have a really robust legal footing. So there's hard work to be done, really, in ensuring some of those rights are tied down. Related to that, but sort of slightly separate to that, is the Good Friday Agreement at Birthright Entitlements which I think they're poorly understood in Britain. and some extent they're poorly understood in the island of Ireland as well, the right to be identified and accepted as British or Irish or both. And I think in cases like, for example, Emma D'Souza's case at the moment, we're seeing a sense in which the people who, if you want to put it like this, who want to be identified and accepted as Irish with the rights that flow from that, including around EU citizenship, should be entitled to do so. And as we've seen in relation to Emma's case, the Home Office is really struggling with the outworkings of that right. And I think what it's exposing is, and I think it's fair to say this now, that the Good Friday Agreement hasn't been properly implemented in law, policy and practice in domestic law. So there's a sense in which it's right to say that right is poorly understood. 
But there's also a sense in which it hasn't been, like the CTA, it hasn't been properly codified in domestic law and the legal reforms needed to reflect it haven't taken effect. Now, I would say I used to be on the Human Rights Commission here and we submitted advice to the British government in 2008. And one of the things we did think about back in 2008 was exactly this sort of issue. We tried, we did put in the advice to the British government, you know, a formalised right around exactly that and exactly these issues because it's something we spotted a long time ago. Now, while both states were in the European Union, it was sort of papered over and it was covered by existing rights. But what Brexit is doing is in that really unhelpful division it's creating between British identity and Irish identity, it's really highlighting these sorts of issues. And so I suppose the thing that concerns me, and you'll have heard this, you know, everybody speaks about the Good Friday Agreement. You know, on this island, in Britain, around Europe, everybody loves the Good Friday Agreement. But I actually think there's an issue around reading the Good Friday Agreement and implementing some of its provisions properly in law. And Brexit is exposing all this at the moment. Isn't it true that actually the assumption had been that if you had an Irish passport and you lived in Northern Ireland, you had the same rights as an Irish citizen in the Republic. But in actual fact, that's not necessarily the case. And in a sense, that's being shown by Emma D'Souza, but also the fact that after we leave the European Union, potentially people living in Northern Ireland who've got Irish passports will not have access to the European Health Insurance Card, for example, because some of the the rights associated with the European Union are about residency rather than the passport you hold. That's absolutely spot on, and I think it goes back to the joint report of December 2017. People cite this paragraph 52 and the promises that were made to Irish citizens, and there is a real tangible sense that those promises haven't been delivered there's a risk that Irish citizens in the North will be left behind, but that promises made, both in relation to Brexit, but actually in relation to the Good Friday Agreement, haven't been delivered, that Irish citizens in the North are, are sort of second-class citizens in this conversation. But I think what's striking at the moment is the, the scale and the extent of, of the, the mobilisation around that and promises that were made and, and keeping those promises. Now, whether that's a matter of competencies, i.e. who's best placed to do that? Is that done in the withdrawal agreement or protocol? Or is that best done now at the next stage? Once that's out of the way, you move into to solidifying some of those rights. If that's the case, we need to hear more from the Irish government. And that's why the reports this week are quite interesting. And one of the things I do wonder about is, is there work going on under the radar on a lot of these things that we need to know more about that would sort of try and ease people's anxieties, which are really quite sharp at the moment? But, of course, it, we shouldn't ignore the fact that there are certain promises yeah. in the Good yeah. Friday Agreement on human rights which have never been implemented yeah. anyway. Yeah. On a, again, absolute, absolutely right. You know, I'm one of those people who would say that even before Brexit came along, we have a rights and equality crisis in this society, that the promises of the Good Friday Agreement in relation to rights and equality and the sort of society that we wanted to see here have simply not been delivered. Now, that statement was true Prior to Brexit, Brexit has made that a hundred times worse and is exposing that. The moment where there is so much, you know, and I, you know, I don't like using this language, but the, you know, the warm words and the lip service often paid to the Good Friday Agreement. What people need to look at is just how much that document refers to equality and rights and what those things actually mean in this region, in this society right now. I would put it as strongly crisis for rights and equality now that needs to be addressed and Brexit has just made that a whole lot worse. 
Now, that broadly covers the problems that we have with the Theresa May withdrawal agreement. Now, if we actually leave the European Union, as still seems possible, without any sort of deal, how much worse are people in the north, not just people who are Irish citizens, but also UK citizens? What, What rights do they lose? I do think the withdrawal agreement and the protocol does a decent job of trying to protect things at the moment as they are here. And we do have to acknowledge, I think those of us who work in rights and equality, that the withdrawal agreement and the protocol in particular does include rights and equality. It doesn't go as far as perhaps everyone would want, but it is definitely, it's in there, right? So it's something. Um, If that is lost and we crash out into a no-deal scenario, you're in a, a desperate patchwork situation of... I suspect both governments and a variety of other actors trying to, in in an emergency situation, patch together a range of solutions. Interestingly enough, for those who are arguing for a no-deal outcome, which nobody here wants, nobody at Westminster seems to want either, um, it actually may make the Good Friday Agreement, or a supercharged version of the Good Friday Agreement, even more important here. Because the north-south, east-west... Uh, the British-Irish institutions there, they then become even more important in a scenario like that where you're relying primarily on bilateralism, which nobody wants. Again, I would accept that entirely. There are those people who uh, are arguing specifically for an O'Deal outcome, and their argument seems to defy all the evidence, but we're in the world of you know, fake news. We're in the world of uh, when you confront people with facts, they reject them. And I think you're right. You know, there are people who, who are saying, we, we saw it last week, bring it on. People other than me have, you know, talked about the delusional fantasist nature of that vision of Britain, I think, which makes little sense. But, you know, yeah, people are arguing for it. But the consequences, like thinking about rights and equality and thinking about real people around these islands, the consequences are catastrophic and disastrous. I think those people are very, very silly to be making that argument. And what, for example, are the rights that people in Northern Ireland could lose with a no-deal outcome in terms of their human rights? Well, I think, in a sense, there would be a scrambling around to try and put things in place in a post-EU no-deal scenario. But essentially what you effectively end up in the longer term losing is that EU law framework of protection. And I suppose there's two things that I would highlight there. One is that EU law has been very, very important in the development of equality. And particularly in this society, where in specific areas there simply wouldn't have been advances made without European Union law and without membership of the European Union. So equality impact here in the longer term would be disastrous. Actually, the environmental impact here, climate change, environmental protection, the EU has been fundamentally important, losing that framework and context. I think over the longer term as well, the, the socio-economic impact over the longer term of a no-deal Brexit, that's the one that scares me the most. The economic consequences of a no-deal crash-out Brexit are there. I think they're empirically verifiable as to what they will be. And the worry for me on that is around socioeconomic rights, people's well-being, the basic bread and butter social and economic rights that really are the underpinning of many people's lives and the disastrous impact of that in relation to their jobs, work, future, etc. So, And do we have clarity in the event of a no-deal outcome in terms of people's uh, ability to move and travel around the European Union? For example, people from other EU state, uh, states, the, the EU26, their ability to live and work in, in Northern Ireland? 
Well, I think what we're seeing at the moment is that uh, the Irish government, British government, the European Union is trying to put in place contingency measures to deal with a no-deal outcome. They're providing all sorts of advice. They're providing all sorts of planning suggestions. Uh, perhaps there hasn't been as much in relation to contingency planning on around the rights and equality issues that, that we're talking about right now, and we might need to hear a bit more in the time ahead. But in a sense, once you fall into that scenario, you're you're relying on goodwill. Mm. You're relying on generosity. You're relying on states not being so annoyed by the attitude of the British government that they decide to punish British citizens who live in their as a result of that. So you, you're into a, a patching together mess of bilateral uh, attempts by people to to mop up somebody else's mess, right? So that's what we're effectively talking about. And to be fair, because governments and human beings are what they are, they would probably work very hard to try and resolve some of these messes. But it's a bit like Brexit in itself. There's a constant sense in this discussion that you have people of good sense trying to deal with a mess created by people who walked away from the consequences of their decision. So I think a no-deal crash-out, people would work hard to be generous, but you'd be relying on political goodwill, you're relying on people's generosity, and that may not be there, particularly in a no-deal Brexit that is willed for and sought. Now lastly, Colin, you've been writing about this. The opinion polls over the last few days have been indicating that Brexit has generated a sense that a united Ireland has become more likely. Now, you've written about the circumstances in which a border poll would be initiated by the Secretary of State. Could you, could you explain that? First point I'd like to make, one of the things that, along with other people, I've tried to argue in recent times is that we need to, to borrow Michelle Barney's terminology, de-dramatise the conversation around this. And actually, part of me wonders whether the border poll phrase itself, we need to think of a different way of describing it because uh, it's rather stark and it's about people. A bit like Brexit, it's about human beings and it'll be about human beings on this island. So there's, again, de-dramatise it. Why? Because the Good Friday Agreement, it's at the core of the Good Friday Agreement, compromise if you like. Uh, It was worked on for many, many years. The idea that the constitutional status of this region rests on consent. There's a mechanism there involving concurrent referendums on the island. And I, as a starting point, would simply say, what is the problem with testing consent, periodically even? And I think we need to radically de-dramatise and normalise that conversation. Now, I realise that that the reaction to that is often not positive, and sometimes it feels as if people wish, certainly in some of my recent interventions, that I would shut up and go away and stop saying it. But I'm not going to stop saying it because I think it is central to the Good Friday Agreement. The No Deal argument is really quite simple as well. It's a sense of which some of the polling that you'll have seen and some of the opinion surveys simply suggest that in a No Deal outcome, in a crash-out scenario we've talked about, a significant number of people here might want to have a look at a different constitutional future. One way of staying in the European Union is, is leaving the UK. But... Nobody wants to do that in a panicked, rushed moment forced on us all by Brexiteers. Uh, the sensible way forward is to do that, as, you, as your work has pointed out, in a planned, prepared way, a sensible time frame, 
in a conversation in which we think about what sort of island we all want to live in. And, you know, from my point of view, I'd like to see that conversation involve human rights and equality and, and how we want to share this island. But in a no-deal scenario, given some of the opinion polling at the moment, I think it's a reasonable thing to say. There's a formula, as you know, it's in the Good Friday Agreement, it's in the Northern Ireland Act as well, gives enormous amount of discretion to the Secretary of State. She can call a poll whenever she wants, for whatever reason she wants, but it shifts into the level of duty to do so, when it's likely that people might choose, you know, in a sense, to leave the UK. And all I've really been saying is that that seems a fair and reasonable point to make. Sometimes that's not received in a welcome way. It sometimes seems to be unhelpful, but I do think it needs to be said. Like, I've written something recently where I think, you know, it's not a helpful thing for people to say it's divisive or dangerous or destructive or toxic, to mention that, because, you know, it's at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement. Compromise, And the last thing we need now is for anybody to be undermining the Good Friday Agreement even further than it has already been undermined. So I would say let's you know, have a calm, relaxed conversation over the longer term, but I think it's entirely reasonable for people to point to the statistics and evidence around no deal and to point to the Good Friday Agreement and mechanism for dealing with some of that. The Highwell Trust podcast presents Brexit Focus. As we draw near to the UK's exit from the European Union, Paul Goslin brings monthly updates on the negotiating processes, how Brexit is affecting us in the North West, whilst attempting to take away some of the fear and uncertainty from the issue on the local community. Hollywell Trust Brexit Focus podcast, released on the 25th of every month. Catch up on past episodes for free on our SoundCloud page, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Search Hollywell Podcast. Yet again, really interesting from Colin, and particularly interesting around the United Ireland conversation that was mentioned there at the end. You also caught up with FOIL MP Alicia McKellion, that really important that we did that during this week, given how important Westminster has been in the last couple of weeks. But before we hear from Alicia, I think it's also important to say that we did reach out to the DUP, they arranged a, an interview with Gregory Campbell, but with no success there. Well, Gregory did agree to do the interview, but okay. at the last minute he became too busy to do it. So unfortunately, uh, but hopefully we'll hear from Get Gregory on another occasion. Yeah. But, on, uh, but Alicia gave us uh, a thorough briefing on how she sees things, because although she doesn't take her seat, she has been in Westminster for recent political activities, and we listened to what Alicia has to say. It's certainly very interesting times, uh, and when you're in the middle of such chaos, for me personally, Personally, certainly reaffirmed my position not to be involved in the circus that has been exposed to the world, I suppose, over the past few months. What's very, very clear, and there's not much clear, the only thing that's clear in my, my eyes is that no one knows what they're doing. You could be talking to uh, one MP from a certain party who'd give you a different version uh, of events from uh, another MP in the same party. There's no agreement amongst the internal ranks of both of the major parties, um, but even some of the smaller parties. I find it particularly interesting talking to them because there's fractions amongst them all. So the only thing that's clear is that no one knows what they're doing over there. And of course, both the two major parties have got splits within them in terms of different approaches to Brexit. In particular, the Conservative Party has got uh, people with different approaches to how Brexit should be negotiated. Have you picked up any sense of a possible cross-party 
arrangement that would actually see something perhaps a bit like Theresa May's deal come into place? There had been discussion and there does continue to be discussions amongst certain members of individual parties. One would have been hopeful uh, a few weeks ago that something could have come about. Uh, With those conversations, I'm not so convinced uh, at this point in time. Uh, Although, who knows, if I had the answer, I'd be worth a a point or two. Um, No one knows what's going to happen over there, let alone me, uh, the Prime Minister of Britain doesn't know the next move and I certainly don't but it's certainly very interesting times over there. I actually reflected in there's a place in Westminster called Portcullis House and I was over a few weeks ago and I, I it was quite bizarre looking at what was going on amongst and between people and as, as I say it, it for me was comforting to know that the decisions that we took as a party, we being Sinn Féin, immediately after the, the, the Brexit referendum were the right decisions and that were, that was to focus our efforts on Europe and on the Irish government because clearly uh, the people of Ireland's interests will be best served by uh, us here in Ireland and indeed Europe have proven to be uh, very effective in trying to ensure that the commitment that they've shown to Ireland over the past 20 plus years remains and, and that's where our focus will continue. And were MPs from any other parties trying to put pressure on you to take your seats? We have had conversations of course with uh, other political parties and, and individual MPs but our position on it is very, very clear. You know, We've never wavered on our position and we won't. We're very clear. Uh, we don't have a mandate to take up a seat in Westminster. But some MPs have said to you that they would like you to. Oh yes, oh yes. Although again, I think uh, I don't think anyone could have guessed the enormity of the defeat of the government last week with the two hundred and thirty plus against the government. So you know, it 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 quickly moved the argument off seven Republican Irish MPs being able to save the day, but. As I say, we've no mandate to sit in Westminster. I'm thankful I don't have a mandate to sit in Westminster because, as I say, there's very little clear about what's going on in Westminster. But again, one of the other things that is clear is that Irish people's interests will never be served over there. Okay, Paul, the next month coming up is obviously crucial as we head towards the deadline. What are the main things that we need to be looking out for other than, you know, borders and backstops and things like that what's the key points the big question is whether the house of commons is going to take control of the brexit process Mm -hmm. taking it out of the hands of theresa may and this is a constitutional crisis because you know who is in control of this country is it government is it parliament and that question will be answered in some way or another in the next few days so this isn't just anymore about Brexit. It's also about who has ultimate say in the running of the country. Is it the people we've directly elected or is it the people that are representative of that parliament? So that is the big question. Okay. And of course, the other thing we should say, Gerard, is that we were given a bit of a a boost by being listed by the RT Listener Guide as one of the best Brexit podcasts in Ireland. So I think we should congratulate ourselves. Fair play. Well done on that. (laughs) Hard work. Well, well, uh, recognised by an independent source is always a really good thing. So, Paul, more of your hard work as represented in your Brexit blog will be in the Derry Journal on the 25th of January. 
and it'll be available on paper and online. And we have finally just about got round to doing the Hollywell Trust website up. So from the middle of next week, uh, from the start of February, the blogs and the back blogs also will be available there for those that are interested in them. So Paul, thank you for today. Thank you for your insight as always. Thank you to D Corn for production support and to all of the people that took the time to give us an interview. And keep an eye out or keep an ear out for the podcast this time next month again. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust, and on Twitter it's at Hollywell T.